Malcolm Honline not able to join us today, so the weekly update I am hoping will air next on New Year's Day, one week from today. Please, God. I do want to mention that our friends at Jewish World Review, they don't have the day off. No, they're providing thousands of articles on Israel and the Jewish world that you could print out before Shabbos. Go to jewishworldreview.com. Again, jewishworldreview.com and check it out. You'll be glad you did. It's a very comprehensive and interesting website. It's a lot of unbelievable articles. On Tuesday night, this coming Tuesday night, it's the We Are One event for the One Israel Fund. It'll be online, and I have the honor of hosting it. Elizabeth Savetsky, God Elbaz, Naftali Bennett, Caroline Glick, all part of the program. We'll be honoring guests of honor, Dr. Emma Laskin and Bart Baum, Ami Luri from Sheila Winery, Rebecca and Gabe Boxer, Gloria and Morris Grobe will be memorialized, and the award will be accepted by the Grobe Oppenheimer and Pollock families. And the Adid Yesha awardees are Hannah, Talia, Molly, Isabella, and Ariel, 12th graders at SKA Halb High School for Girls. And they'll be honored that night as well. It's all happening Tuesday night. Uh, if you if you missed the conversation with Eve Harrow earlier this week here at JM and the AM, try to catch it. Because those of you who think that uh, nothing's being done during corona and everything has stalled... Boy, the One Israel Fund is experiencing the exact opposite. So many projects, so many renovations, so many expansions of so many areas, developments, towns, and tourist attractions have been able to be uh, undertaken over the last few months because of the lack of people and the plenty of space available to do so. So uh, One Israel Fund needs our help more than ever. Go to oneisraelfund.org slash one. oneisraelfund.org slash we are one. The great political commentator and analyst Jake Novak is with us live via telephone. He, of course, appears at 11 a.m. every Monday with us here at the Nahum Siegel Network. And uh, I am remiss that I waited this long to get Jake on the air. He is honestly one of the people responsible uh, behind the scenes for, us, for the great broadcast that we had from the UAE just two weeks ago. Jake Novak, welcome back to JM in the AM. Oh, thank you so much for that kind introduction, and um, obviously I've uh, congratulate you, congratulated you privately, but let me publicly congratulate you for those broadcasts, not just the idea and the concept and putting it together, but the execution was really fantastic, uh, really, really uh, hard to stop listening. I couldn't believe how fast the hours went by uh, every morning. Really, I, when I was listening, it was really impressive. I appreciate that very much. And one of the things that I learned from this experience, and sometimes it does take, you know, a, a, a many, many decades to learn lessons in life. I've always, we've always heard our teachers and our instructors preach to us, you know, the more you know about history, the more it's easy to understand the period of time that you're in. And boy, if this episode of going to the UAE in the aftermath of the Abraham Accords was not an indication of that, because as you had uh, prepared us privately, and then, of course, we discussed publicly on the air. And you can't just look at the last 80, 90, 100 years in isolation compared to the rest of Jewish history with other religions. you got to go back and look at the entire larger picture, and I think that's one of the messages we brought back, that if you look at the larger picture, we're talking about a completely new world right now. Yeah, you know, as a, as a community, Jews are... Are, it's a little bit of a disadvantage on that, and I think it was because of relatively good intentions. You know, I think from the religious side, we had 
religious instructors over the years who wanted to focus on Limudei Kodesh. They wanted to do that, so they didn't want to have, like, if you go to your average more Haredi or even even more Orthodox yeshiva, you're not going to have a Jewish history course. Right. Uh, and then on the secular side, there's a very famous story of David Ben-Gurion when they approached him uh, in the education ministry and saying, you know, can we create a Jewish history program for the Israeli schools? This is in 1949 or 1950. And he said, what's there to say? Uh, we'll have a one-sentence one history lesson. We were oppressed for 2,000 years. Now we're back in Israel. Go play soccer now. I mean, so from both the secular and the religious side, we've had a little bit of a disadvantage. And I think it was good intentions on both sides. I don't think it was a you know revisionist history or an attempt to erase knowledge. It was just a focus on the now and a focus on what they felt was a higher priority. But you're so right. I mean, if you don't understand, I mean, you know, the Jewish people have really started the whole recorded history business, when you think about it. And for us to sort of gloss over anything previous to the last hundred years or so is really a big mistake. You know, for us to you know, look at biblical history, then skip over to maybe 1900, that's not a good idea. We really need to know more about where we've been and and how other people have interacted with us during that. And just to give everyone the bigger picture here, what, what we're talking about, and again, those who were tuned in, I think, got this message, is that, again, no fault of anybody involved, if you grow up in what we call the Yeshiva League, right to left, uh, here in the New York area, or probably anywhere in the United States, uh, we have uh, been inundated with 20th century history about all who hate us, including what we perceived as the majority or all of the Arab world. And again, not blaming anybody, that's just the context of the way the 20th century worked. And you reminded us both before the trip, and then I had a chance to remind everybody during the trip, that this, what's happening in Dubai, what's happening in Bahrain, etc., is not an exception when it comes to the bigger picture in history. There have been many, many times that both with Christians and with uh, members of the Muslim faith, that Jewish communities got along very, very well, especially when it comes to Islam. You know, we went to the UAE, and one of the things, and today's a fast day, so it's funny I'm bringing this up. Uh, and we went to the UAE, and one of the things we, we learned that, that, that it's, it's really not coincidence nor, uh, something to gloss over that the multiple prayer sessions per day and, and fasting being part of our tradition and what you can or can't eat meat wise is important to other. The fact that all of those apply in some way to both religions needs to be put into context. It's not just a coincidence. That's right. And you know, it's something that is very much on the minds of most Muslims I've ever known. You know, when I was in grad school, we had our first day in grad school. This was at Northwestern 26, 27 years ago. And they gave little bios for everyone from our incoming class, and mine included some of my Jewish background, of course. And uh, a Muslim woman came over to me and immediately said, you know, there's a lot of similarities. You know, that was the first thing she said. Just, it, it, and and I, that was the experience I've had ever since. There's a real uh, effort on a lot of Muslims, especially if they're involved in any way in the secular world, to seek out those who have similar practices and similar, uh, you know, customs. And uh, to me, that is something that is constant throughout, and I heard that a lot during your, your broadcast. It's important to understand, obviously, the Rambam was interested in that, and that's one of the reasons why he was so enamored of, or at least was more admiring of uh, Muslim culture at the time of his life. Right. Um, and, you know, listen, it all has to be tempered. Obviously, there have been yep. ups and there's downs. Yep. You know, whenever you and I say something like this, there's going to be someone who really wants to emphasize the negative moments. Yep. I and I don't it. think we should quiet those people right. and say we're not going to listen to you. Understood. But, 
But it look, has to be look, put we, into we, the context, look, as we, said. we saw what happened this week in Israel. I mean, you know, yeah. the reality is there are people who literally want to take rocks and smash the skulls of Jews, unfortunately. Yeah. We learned that lesson, you know, and, and we have to keep that in mind. By the way, I was thinking about this really, really early this morning. Um, in the context of our conversation, is there a way to, with all this in mind, and with my friends from Iran who claim that growing up in Iran was similar to my experience in the UAE, meaning they played soccer with the non-Jewish Islamic kids, and they had neighbors who were very friendly, and there was respect, mutual respect, business dealings, etc., assuming that it's the, it's it's the same or at least similar to the experience I had in the UAE, is there a way to to sum up where things went wrong, what the 78-79 revolution, what, what, it, what, what was going wrong in that country that it created revolutionaries who wanted major change and that unfortunately created this 40-year disaster over there in Iran? Well, yeah, I mean, 70, you had a very corrupt government in Iran. Now, there, have been, there were corrupt governments throughout the Arab world, and the Muslim world, obviously, because the Iranians are not Arabs, we should point that out. Right. Um, but the difference was that you had a... You had many years of a more open society in Iran, and that allowed for all kinds of people who could take advantage of the freedoms that they had there. In other words, we keep thinking about, well, freedom of the press and openness, that's always going to lead to good things. Well, I would argue that sometimes you have to be careful with that. Look what's happening in China. For years we've been told if we just open up to China... Uh, they'll eventually become more democratic and open. And actually, it feels like they've started to import their, especially with our tech companies, they've started to import, import totalitarianism over to us. And I think what happened in Iran was that. Now, what happened also was Iran was a direct result of the fall of Egypt as far as the leading enemy of Israel. The, you would not have had the Iranian Revolution if it had not been for the Egypt-Israel Peace Accord. Wow. And, and now, now, there were good things about it, but as also we've spoken about, the failure of the Israel-Egypt-Israel Peace Accord to be uh, translated as a positive thing throughout the Muslim world, unlike what we're seeing with what's going on in Dubai and the Bahrain, Bahrain peace deals and other peace deals we've talked about. The, it, it came off in the Muslim world as a total pay, as a total sort of cop out by Egypt, as a weakness on their part, and that somebody somewhere had to take up the Islamist cause somewhere because Egypt is very important. Egypt is the birthplace of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is the the parent organization, the seedling organization of every Islamist genocidal Islamic group. There so, are a lot of them I know. I know Al Qaeda, Hezbollah, right. all those all those groups. The Muslim Brotherhood, even though it's mostly you know it was a Sunni organization, even the Shia. Islamist groups come from the Muslim Brotherhood, which was very much an Egyptian entity. So, if the Mus- so if the Iranian Revolution wouldn't have worked, and excuse the you know a p- a pedestrian way I put that, yeah. but if it wouldn't have worked, that then what would have happened? There would have been a peace deal with Israel, and who would have taken upon that, themselves that mantle that you just described? Well, you know, then I mean, again, now you're really dealing with the butterfly effect. Who knows what else happened right. if you go back in time? Right. I don't know if there would have been that many great opportunities. Otherwise, what really needed to be fixed was the way that Egypt and Israel related to each other, and the way Egypt related to itself. Egypt still has, Egypt still, you know, for, for all, most of our lives, Egypt was the most important Arab country because it had the strongest military and it had the largest population. And it was next door to Israel. Yes. Right. It also had the largest, uh, popu- it has the largest illiteracy rate, still does in that mm. part of the world. Yeah. Um, it had so much, you know, a tremendous amount of natural resources and, and that gateway to, you know, to, into the other, from one continent to the next. 
and, you know, blew all those opportunities. And it still is it to some extent, however, because Saudi Arabia so much holds the financial purse strings of Egypt now, Egypt is much more reasonable than it's ever been, but it still has a problem. It is nowhere near democracy. It is nowhere near really dealing with some of the very radical anti-Jewish, anti-Israel elements within Egypt, like Saudi Arabia is dealing with it inside of their country. And for, to me, that, has been, that was a real issue, and that is one of the things that really turned what had been um, smaller groups of terrorist groups, smaller groups of genocidal Islamists that were in and out of and, and suddenly you had an entire country that became Islamist in Iran right. because that peace agreement angered uh, was not explained correctly and was not enforced correctly in a, in a political and a cultural way in Egypt, like we're seeing with Dubai. That we're seeing such a cultural change because Egypt did not do that or felt that the government was too weak to do so. You had you had something like Iran. I thought it was inevitable to happen. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio around the world, the web, and NachumSiegel dot com, and the NachumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Jake Novak's with us at Jake Jake NY on Twitter at Jake Jake NY. One more question on this, and there are other topics i got to get to, but I, I just have to ask you. So if the first point you brought up when I asked that question about Iran was co- a corrupt government, is that essentially, and I know all the other factors you just mentioned, but is that essentially the big difference between them in those years and now Dubai today? Because it was described to us by really prominent business people, both Emiratis and foreigners, that that's the big advantage in Dubai is that the government has great concern for the population and they're trying to manage the funds responsibly. Am I giving too much credit to the kingdom in Dubai, or is uh, or is that accurate? Well, not compared to the Shah of Iran. I mean, the, the Shah of Iran was an out-and-out kleptocrat, and he also wasn't that smart. I mean, look, let's put it this way. I mean, I hate to be tough on the guy, you know, but he really was very, very, he had a tremendously deaf ear to what was going on in his country for many years, even before the Ayatollah started to, uh, you know, he had been in exile in France, and he started, you know, causing problems there. Um, the, 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 it's amazing, the, that, that is the biggest contrast. Forget, you know, you don't, if, you don't, if, it's, if it's hard to define exactly what corruption is, then let's, let's use this as a definition. The Emirati ruling family is not looking to just steal all the money for itself right. and is very, very attuned and is very, it really has its ear to the ground to what its people... I'm not saying they always do what everyone on the street wants. Right, but they, but, they get the, but they get the big picture. Yeah, and they're very involved. They're out there. I mean, you know, the Shah of Iran was totally inaccessible. He was, you know, his, his children, and his children weren't even in the country. One of the, one of the reasons why his son escaped the whole thing is right. because he was at the Air Force Academy as a visiting student. I don't know what he was studying, but he was a visiting student at, in, at Colorado Springs. And, you know, so they're, they're very involved. They're very involved in the day-to-day stuff. They're, they're noticeable. You mentioned how they have their picture everywhere. Right. They, they're, they're, they're popular with the people because they are, they're connected to them in a much better way. It's not a democracy. You know, there, there's things that I would like to see improved. There is uh, a lot of government uh, control over certain things. But on the other hand, they don't have a lot of other regulations and taxes, which turns it into much more of a freer city than, than it had been, than, you know, than so many others are, including here in the United States or a lot, in a lot of ways. Right. And the, so, and, yeah. so, the fa- so when the U.S. backed the Shah, that was the bigger problem. In other words, they hated the West, the new group, hated the Ayatollah crowd, hated the West to begin with. But once we showed that we were ready to physically and in other ways support the Shah, then then that was it. That was the that was the you know game set match, right? Yeah, and we were trapped into that by the Cold War, and and obviously the Cold War was filled with all kinds of missed opportunities. You know, it was just so you know when things get solved, 
we say to ourselves, why did we do this before? You know, right. when Israel, you know, right. the, the reaching out to Saudi Arabia right. and working with them on the security aspect and the economic aspect seems so obvious to us now. I wish yeah. we had thought about that in 2001. Good point. And the same thing also with the Soviets. And defe- defeating the Soviet Union really was about standing up to them without necessarily get, getting into all these minor wars like right. Korea and Vietnam and things like that. We could have beaten them earlier, and maybe we wouldn't have had to have backed you know, lousy people like the Shah, who wasn't even in the top five of the lousy people we had to back in the Cold War, but right. he was he was close. I mean, he was just really yeah, honestly. It's even worse than his corruption was his incredible stupidity. The man was completely deaf to a very large company. It wasn't country. It wasn't like he was like some small country with a couple of million people. I mean, Iran's a huge country with right. a lot of resources, and he was running it like it was like a, a backdoor operation. You know, like a bookie. It was ridiculous. Good point. Jake Novak with us. Jake Jake and why on Twitter. Uh, all right, it's no secret um, you didn't have a Cy Young performance when it came to uh, the states in the <laughs> most recent election, but you had a you had a pretty solid, you know, uh, eighteen and ten season, I would say that time. <laughs> um, and boy, and Florida, Florida was like your perfect game, frankly, the way you predicted that one. Um, but with all that in mind, Mister Novak, what can you tell us about January the fifth? What can you tell us about the state of Georgia? Well, the state of Georgia has, to me, there's no evidence that the problems that have plagued Georgia and a lot of the other states where I believe the results of the election really can't be considered to be the true will of the people. I don't really see them fixing any of those problems. You know, the the two biggest problems with this election, and I know that, to me, there's a really big misdirection with this focus on the voting machines. I don't think there's anywhere to go with that, and I think the the cases involved with that are not really going to go anywhere for a number of reasons. The real problem, Nachum, is that we had vote by mail, and we have something called ballot harvesting, right. which led to, I think, millions upon millions of fraudulent votes. And even if they didn't, let's say you have some listeners here who are very offended by that comment, very upset, and it's the kind of thing that, that gets, you know, that, that'll get you censored on social media if you say that line that I just said. Let me just put it this way. Even if you think that every one of those votes was legitimate, it clearly was a violation of a very important principle in every democratic society, which is the secret ballot. Right. Vote by mail destroys the secret ballot, as does ballot harvesting. Ballot harvesting, to put it very briefly, is when uh, only the Democrats do this. The Democrats go into these neighborhoods, they show people a filled-out ballot, and they basically get them to sign it. Right. If you don't have a secret ballot, you don't have a true democracy, and you don't have a legitimate election. And no one upon no one can deny that we had millions upon millions, probably 20 million at least, ballots that were not secret ballots. I think a lot more than that. So when you talk about the state of Georgia, I see the same thing. Apparently there's already about 800,000 ballot harvested ballots out there. Uh, There's going to be vote by mail. And none of this has been addressed. Now, I thought that the courts would try to thread a needle here and ban this and say, uh, Trump still lost the election, but the way that he lost is completely illegal. I mean, I don't know how they would do that, but listen, that's why they pay these, uh, yeah, that's why these clerks, they don't get paid actually a lot that much. They get paid eventually, they get paid a lot. That's why they go through, you know, that's why they choose in the Supreme Court the top graduates of all the top law schools, because they need smart people to thread these needles and do these legal fictions. But it's very, very discouraging because, as you know, I, I like to look at the stats from previous elections and see where, where they're going. Right. I think anybody worth their salt looking at this election whether they're happy with the result or not, it's going to have to throw out these statistics. It's like looking at those basketball games that that, cor- that corrupt referee 20 years ago or right. 15 years ago got caught. There's nothing to learn from this election, unfortunately, because it was so fouled up, at least from the secret ballot point of view. Everyone well, has well, to agree on that. Well, then, based on what you just said, it sounds like you're ready to concede the state of Georgia and the Senate's now going to be a Democratic Senate. 
I, 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 w- I, I really see it as a tough, tough hill for the Republicans to climb, espe- climb especially since there isn't a tremendous amount of I don't know if there's going to be a lot of Election Day enthusiasm, which is where the Republicans have their only shot of overcoming this. But, I mean, really, to me, I just don't understand why there wasn't more of a... I know there were a lot of... There were court cases filed to try to stop some of the wider vote-by-mail stuff. But they needed to do more than that. Sadly, I think they needed to do more. If the Democrats were out in the streets canvassing, then they needed to be out in the streets identifying to the authorities, here's where the ballots are. Let's have them impounded. We're not going to destroy them. We're not going to cause any violence. We're not going to do anything else like that. But let's impound them until a court can decide whether they're valid. Let's not count them at all until that happens. And they didn't do that, and I don't think they're doing that in Georgia. So I don't see how they come out ahead unless this fraud is out there. And as I said to everyone across the country the entire year this year was that I expected Trump to win the election, with the one caveat being I don't know how much fraud there's going to be. And, and that's the thing. I don't know how much fraud there's going to be in Georgia, but it seems like there's going to be a lot. Oh boy, I'll tell you, for those of us who really love America, it's so sad that uh, that there's so much, uh, at the minimum, accusations, but who knows just how much fraud there really is when it comes to these democratic elections, or what we hope would be democratic elections. Finally, Jake, um, tell me the significance to you, both historically and in 2020, when you read an article that Israel is prepared to build a 120-story building. <laughs> well, you know, the first thing that I think about is just the architectural aspect. Of it. They, they always told us when you would go to visit Israel, even as a little kid, that they actually had the capacity because of, the, I guess, of the bedrock there, whatever it was, that they could build tall buildings there. But and then you, of course, you had the issue of security. You know, right. well, we don't want to build such large buildings because they would be such a, an obvious target for right. people. Um, that shows that Israel is. It's a significant economic achievement, first and foremost. Let's not get that. It's a major economic... This is a country that can get the financing for this kind of thing. You know, every large building that you see in Manhattan, no one really owns. And a ton of people have like that, have a piece of that pie. Because it's just so expensive to do. And, you know, whoever's name on it, it probably only has a small percentage. So that's one thing. But the second thing is, yes, the, the, the security that comes from all this. You know, these missile tests, I think this is one of the top stories in the world over the last month that no one covered, almost no one, almost no one covered. The successful missile tests that Israel conducted a couple of weeks ago that show a combination of David Sling, the Arrow missiles, and uh, Iron Dome are now able to take out cruise missiles, which, understand, has been... Hezbollah and Iran's, one of their major projects, if not the major anti-Israel military project over the last 10 years, it's, it's totally negated it, or at least really, really weakened it. So I don't think that you go ahead and do this without some major confidence in the military protection aspect of this, and that is really a, a, a fantastic achievement. And again, remember, it's an economic and military achievement. Uh, if they somehow found a way to grow the building with their agriculture, then it would be a true symbol of everything Israel has accomplished because it would be a combination of those three things. The economic, technical uh, stuff, the defense stuff, and the agricultural cutting edge stuff. Those are all the three great pillars of achievement of Israel that Israel has established. So I kind of maybe they'll have a greenhouse in the building it, and they can put it all together. It would be funny if they asked them how they're building the building and say, "Yeah, we have the dirt and water to do this. Yeah, Don't worry, yeah. we got plenty of it." Yeah, drip uh, irrigation. Jake, love having you on. Thanks for everything, and uh, thanks for joining us this morning. Good Shabbos, everyone. Thank you. Shabbat so much. Shalom, and thank you so much. Is right, uh, Jake Jake NY at Jake Jake NY on Twitter, Jake Novak. I always used to uh, hear from people that if you want, um, if you want to understand something, uh, make sure you hear it from a great Balmaz beer. Make sure you hear it from someone who has the ability to really explain things well. It's one of the reasons I enjoy speaking to him so much.